HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Hey, everyone. This is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. I recently had the opportunity to moderate a panel at Columbia University's Teacher, Teachers College, um, which was hosted by both the New York City Nutrition Education Network and the Lori M. Tisch Center for Food Education and Policy. And we talked about the intersection of nutrition education and food waste. We had such a good conversation that I wanted to be able to bring it to you all. Um, during this event, we discussed federal, state, and local policies and initiatives that aim to reduce and divert food waste, in addition to how consumers can encourage and support these interventions. Joining us today to continue the conversation will be Julia McCarthy, policy analyst at the Lori M. Tisch Center for Food Education and Policy, which is at Columbia University's Teachers College, and Louise Bruce, who is the New York City Organics Senior Program Manager at the New York City Department of Sanitation. We'll also be hearing from Claire Uno, who is the Assistant Executive Director at the Tisch Food Center, and she was responsible for putting the panel discussion together. Um, so really looking forward to that. But before we dig into today's topic, I want to uh, run through some of the biggest food policy-related news from the past week. And I am so excited that the one and only Taylor Lenzet is back in the studio with me to discuss. Hi. Hi, hey, Taylor. Jenna. Did you miss me? I, to I think 
I missed you, and I think our listeners <laughs> missed Everyone you. Did. Everyone did. All of them. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Amazing. David has been getting real creative with the sound <laughs> effects lately. It's um, it's really brought joy to my life. Great. Um, so let's just, let's just get rid of that joy and yep. talk about okay. what's been going on in, in the world of food. First up, Trump's transition. Um, my favorite. Um, <laughs> a major plot twist, but Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp is currently leading his choice for Secretary of Ag. That would be the Democratic senator? Yep. Um, senator Hedkamp is a first-term Democrat from North Dakota and a member of the Senate Ag Committee. She's been super vocal on ag issues and ultimately has separated from the Dems when it comes to things like GMOs and EPA regulation of wetlands and waterlands. Yeah, this is this is tricky. I think a lot of Democrats are hoping she would actually turn it down um, because there is like a super high chance that um, if she takes this post, a Republican will fill her Senate seat. So it would just be one more seat in the Senate. Um, yeah, which would not be so great. So it's like a catch twenty two. Where do we want her? Totally. Um, I was having a conversation with one of my former colleagues. Um, from the Bloomberg administration, who is not like very optimistic, I would say, in terms of his outlook. But we were having this conversation and um, I was like really thinking hard about what, what it was going to be best for this situation for her to do. And he said, and I quote, nothing matters, Jenna. Your world is about to explode. <laughs> Don't overthink it. <laughs> and you heard it here first. And you heard it here first. Matters. Yeah, I think that can be applied to all food issues. So, so thank um, you for that. So moving on to more exciting things, mm -hmm. um, Rick Perry. <laughs> I, this is where I want to be like, I can't even. Yeah. So Donald Trump um, has selected governor, former Governor Rick Perry to lead the Energy Department, um, which we all know he famously forgot mm. um, that he actually wanted to abolish that department in 2011 during a debate. Um, he, that was an amazing. It was a good moment. Clip. They played that like over and over. I rewatched it last night. night. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Liz, I could just keep doing that again and again. Um, he currently serves on the board of Energy, Energy Transfer Partners, which is the company that's building the pipeline near Standing Rock. And bonus, he's a crazy climate change denier. Yeah. Um, so even going so far as to censor climate change. References in reports put together by the Texas Commission on um, Environmental Quality. So that's good. It's really stacking up to be. I, I feel like they put all the climate change deniers together and put them in Trump's cabinet. I mean, yeah, like Exxon Mobil. We didn't uh -huh. even we didn't even talk about him today. Yeah, um, yeah. Just in a similar sort of a last thing that we'll talk about in terms of Trump's transition. Last Thursday, it was announced that Andrew Pudzer would be leading up the Department of Labor. Um, and for those of you who may not know, Pudzer has zero political experience, quite like many of Trump's picks, um, and has really opposed any increase to minimum wage, um, offering paid leave or health insurance to employees. Yeah, this one uh, really stung. And um, again, is like super ironic. Um, the New York Times actually quoted Pudzer um, from a Business Insider article <coughs> earlier this year as saying... Quote, increased automation could be a welcome development because machines were always polite. They always upsell. They never take a vacation. They never show up late. There is never a slip and fall or an age, sex, or race discrimination case. Gross. Yeah, so much for, like, the being a populist president so far. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. So 
Whatever. Any, <laughs> whatever, nothing matters. Um, can we talk about some good news? Yes, we can. Um, Is so there any good news? There, there are a few, okay. a, few shining, right. a few shining moments this week. Um, so Reps Pingree and DeFazio um, are pushing through the organic welfare rule, which we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, this has been a decade in the making, um, and it has support actually from the organic industry and, again, would require outdoor access for all organic poultry and livestock. Um, and ultimately living conditions that accommodate sort of the health and natural behaviors of the animals. So that's good news. Yeah. And hopefully they can get this done before the end of the year. Um, I mean the final weeks. <laughs> the final weeks. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Same thing. Same, same. Um, okay. So also in good news, Nestle scientists settled on a new process that will help cut sugar in chocolate by 40%. Um, and they hope to do this by 2018. So I guess they essentially developed a process to alter um, the structure of science that makes it taste sweeter, uh, but enables them to use a smaller amount. Yeah, exactly. The structure of sugar. Um, I mean, really. (laughs) What a time. (laughs) What a time to be alive. (laughs) Um, Let's see. (laughs) Um, What else is going on? We've got um, one more update. Oh, uh, we do, we do. Okay, yeah. sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, so the FDA has some new guidelines around fruit and veggie juice um, as it pertains to food coloring. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the, that food manufacturers can use color additives from juices and food as long as the food can safely be consumed itself. Okay, so, so this, is, this is a little wonky. Yeah. So this means that color additives can be used from plants as long as the plant itself can be eaten. Correct. Um, weirdly enough, hibiscus and safflower petals did not make the cut. Um, okay. <laughs> just because. Yeah, they didn't make the cut. All right. All right. <laughs> it's like dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for this? Um, public comment is open for the next two months. Um, so you can send your comments to the FDA. Assuming, of course, <clears throat> there will be an FDA in the next two months. There you go. Yeah. All right. So sorry to end it on a, on a negative note. Our, we have got to start be getting like more <laughs> positive in our news updates. If you want us to be positive, please tweet at Eating Matters. Yes. Send us, <laughs> yes. Send us some good stories you want us to talk about. Um, okay. So we're going we're gonna to leave it there. Um, you can send those story ideas um, or discussion topics to us at Eating Matters at HeritageRadio.network, or you can tweet to us at Eat Matters HRN. Okay. To kick off our discussion on food waste, I now want to introduce Claire Uno, Assistant Executive Director at the Tisch Center for Food Education and Policy at Teachers College, um, which recently hosted the panel on food waste and nutrition education. Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenna. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being on. Um, Okay. Can you tell us about the Tisch Food Center and the work that you guys do there? I would be happy to. So the Lori, we have our full name is a real mouthful. Yeah. It's the Lori M. Tisch Center for Food Education and Policy. 
Um, and we are housed within the program nutrition at Teachers College, which is at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And uh, this program is actually where, I don't know if you know this, but the field of nutrition education was founded. What? So, I didn't know that, actually. Yep. Basically, right here, 1909. Wow. So um, the Tisch Food Center, we've been around for quite a while, but um, in 2013, we got our new name and added a focus on policy as well. Um and basically what we do is cultivate research about the connections between a just and sustainable food system and healthy eating. Mm-hmm. And then we translate that research into recommendations and resources for educators, for policymakers, for advocates. Um, and we really have traditionally had a focus on schools. All right. Okay. So last week, um, you, in addition to the New York City Nutrition Education Network, hosted a panel on the connection between food waste and nutrition education. And I, you know, I don't think this maybe the connection between the two maybe is not so immediately apparent. So I'm wondering if you can kind of explain that a little bit and what made you decide to host this panel on this issue. So part of my work for the Tisch Food Center is um, being a member of the New York City Nutrition Education Network, and that network hosts a series of food and health-related um, workshops every year. And food waste was sort of a perfect topic for uh, the event that I got to co-host because both NYSEN and the Tisch Food Center really work at the intersection of nutrition education and food systems. So this made sense for the topic that we could focus on. Um, okay, so can you, can you, I want to get into this a little bit. Can you explain like the, the intersection between the two and how nutrition educators um, can apply the same strategies when helping people change their eating habits um, in addition to helping people or institutions change their policy in the realm of food waste? Sure, it's a great question, and it's definitely um, not immediately obvious. <coughs> given, I think, what a common perception of nutrition education is about, which is really telling people about nutrients. Um, and, you know, I think that that's what folks think of maybe when they hear the term. Um, and in reality, nutrition education is this really wonderful field that can empower people to understand and navigate the food system, which, as we know, can be incredibly complex um, and problematic in terms of things like food waste and also to become advocates for change, both on a personal as well as a policy level. So I kind of want to touch on both of those levels, the Mm -hmm. personal level and the policy more environmental level. Um, I mean, on the consumer level, it's important, and I know your other two wonderfully knowledgeable guests are going to get into some of these figures more, but I think it's important to note that 40% of the food waste happens in homes. So, like, we're all implicated in that, and we all know that... You know, we buy beautiful fresh vegetables and then they turn into mush in our refrigerator <laughs> once in a while, Def- right? Yeah, I'm definitely one of those people, unfortunately. Yeah, so am I. I mean, <laughs> I think we all are. Yeah. So, so what's great about engaging nutrition educators in helping to prevent food waste is there's a lot of um, evidence and theory-based strategies that can be used in sort of the same realm. Because if you think about it, you know, a health goal like 
I want to eat healthier, I want to eat more vegetables, is really the flip side of I want to waste less of those beautiful vegetables that I yeah. bought and had to throw away, right? Yeah. And so this first step of setting that goal is really important. And then the next one is to identify, so what is it that's going to motivate you to help make that behavior change? Is it that you care about the environment, your health, you know, the economics of it, you hate throwing all that money down the tube? Um, so those motivators can be really important in helping you make that change. And then also, like, what are the skills or knowledge or other supports that you need to be able to make that change? So, for instance, let's say you bought some, you know, leeks, but you don't really know how to cook them in a way that your family likes. Or you bought them with the best of intentions, but you got really busy and yeah. you have to clean leeks a lot and you just didn't have time to deal with them, right? Yeah, So. Yeah. These are some of the challenges that people might face. So then what nutrition educators do is work with people to think about, like, what are strategies that could address those challenges? Is it hands-on cooking <coughs> skills? Is it learning new recipes? Is it menu planning? Is it really easy, quick ways to incorporate veggies into your meals every day? Is it something like washing and chopping your vegetables right when you get home from the market so that they're ready to go all week. So, so like identifying small, like what yeah. are the strategies that would work in your life. And, and, and they're then, manageable. What you just described sounds like very, um, you know, like piece by piece, so it's not so overwhelming. Yeah, and, and it's meeting people where they're at. So no matter where it's at, where you're at in terms of like why you want to be doing this and what you need to learn or gain in skills to overcome that, um, and it can be really tangible and achievable. So, so that's the consumer level, and that's a really important place where nutrition educators, I think, can help prevent food waste. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this more like broader policy and environmental and system change. And you know, you know from your time at uh, at the city. The Department of Health and, and public health advocates in general love this term, like making the healthy, healthy choice. The easy choice, choice. Right? yes. I love yeah, it. So that's creating environments where it's like easy as pie to eat those vegetables or fruits or where, whole grains or whatever it is people want to be um, eating more of. And so I think for food waste, we can think about it the same way and how nutrition educators can help make the non-wasteful choice the easy choice. Right. And so an example of that would be like in schools um, where, you know, kids may be um, not eating all the fruits and vegetables that end up on their trays. The nutrition educator can um, institute tastings to get kids to try new fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. or advocate to the school principal to make the lunchtime longer so they have more time to eat more and waste less. So. These are some of the, you know, more environmental changes that nutrition educators also can play a really important role in. Wow. Okay. So it's, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of connection between the two. Nutrition educators were so excited. Yes. <laughs> I will. I I, um, I love kind of learning about the different applications of the work that they do to other elements of the food system, and I think that that connection might not um, be immediately apparent, but it should be, right? I think that these are um, great sort of strategies that can be uh, applied across the board. Yeah, and, and I think just understanding the food system in general is something that's pretty opaque to most of us, and, and it's yeah. something that nutrition educators know intimately. Yeah, and can talk to their um, to individuals about. Um, okay, I think, I mean, this has been so helpful, but before we wrap up, I want to know um, where can our listeners go to find out more information about what the Tish Food Center is doing and maybe any upcoming events you have in the New York City area? 
Sure. So folks can visit our website, which is www.tc.edu forward slash TISH, which is T-I-S-C-H. Um, a really great thing to do there is sign up for our newsletter in which you'll get updates on policy and research and really helpful resources. And they can also follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Tish Food Center, and we're on Facebook as the Tish Food Center as well. Um, and I think the upcoming event that I would mention is that this spring we will be hosting the Just Food Conference again. So keep an eye on Just Food's website um, and our newsletter as well. All right. Awesome. Claire, thank you um, so much for coming on the show today to help tee up this conversation on food waste. Well, thanks so much for having me, and I'm excited to hear what your guests have to say. <laughs> me too. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks. thanks. Okay. Um, I want to take a really quick commercial break right now, um, but when we get back, we will turn to our food waste experts who participated in last week's panel discussion. Stay tuned. And this one's called Casanova by Tom Cruise. We'll be right back. New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified Seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. And we're back. On Eating Matters, where today we are talking all about food waste. Um, and now, joining me to kind of get into this uh, issue in more detail is Julia McCarthy, Policy Analyst at the Lori M. Tisch Center for Food Education and Policy, as well as Luis Bruce, um, who is the Senior Program Manager of New York City Organics at the New York City Department of Sanitation. Julia and Louise, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, okay, so let's let's get right into it. Um, Julia, when we think about food waste prevention, what are some of the proposed um, policies that are currently in play at the federal level, both from like a legislative and a regulatory perspective? Sure. So when we're talking about um, from a regulatory perspective, I assume you mean what's happening at the agency level? Yeah, exactly. Sure. So one thing to point out is the Environmental Protection Agency has a food waste hierarchy, and um, that shows kind of what is the best use of food, that um, we should prevent food waste in the first place. That's eating all the food in our fridge, like yeah. we talked about. Um, we should divert food waste, which is um, specifically looking at donating foods, Mm -hmm. And then we should recycle, and that means composting or sending food to anaerobic digestion um, facilities. And 
the EPA has a variety of sort of resources and education materials that are associated with that food waste hierarchy that you can access that they've been developing, but sort of... So they're, so they're working on, like, putting the, the materials out there on these three kind mm-hmm. of tiers? Yeah, and so those are available for educators, for policymakers, et cetera. Um, but sort of more importantly and more excitingly, EPA and the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, um, has announced uh, its Food Waste Challenge, which it has set a national sort of goal to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030. Wow. Yeah. Pretty Definitely ambitious. ambitious. Yeah. It is. I like it. <laughs> um, and so... They're inviting like community-based organizations. They're inviting um, private groups, like other government agencies, to join in that. So it's like opt-in, and what does it entail exactly? The food waste challenge. Um, that's a great question. I think they're still flushing that out. <laughs> okay, <a little> <laughs> all right. Yeah. They know they want to do it. They yeah. just don't know how they're going to get there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you got to start somewhere. Um, what about on the legislative side? So on the legislative side, um, two sort of exciting things are the enhanced deduction for food donations and then also the Food Recovery Act. And so the first one, the enhanced deduction, uh, was a legislative effort that came last year, Mm -hmm. and that essentially allowed a greater uh, group, like not just a certain kind of corporation, but partnerships, LLCs, et cetera, mm-hmm. to take advantage of a federal deduction in for your ta- for your income um, when you donated food to an emergency feeding operation. Okay. So you get money back in some way. Um, you essentially... Get a credit? It's different. A deduction and credit are different, but okay. you don't have to report a certain amount okay. of income. All right. So there's a financial incentive. Yes. To, okay. Financial incentive. <laughs> to, to pre- di- is it preventing or diverting food waste? That would be diverting. So okay. the food's already been prepared and moved on, but... Um, okay, so, um, <laughs> sorry, anyway. Um, okay, so what what is the second one? What is the second? So the second is the Food Recovery Act, um, and that is a comprehensive food waste bill that sort of looks across this food waste hierarchy and um, sets goals uh, to be introduced into federal legislation across the board. Okay. Um, shall I talk more about that? Yeah. 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 Um, so... Uh, Pingree wrote this bill, and it includes... Shelly Pingree, who we mm-hmm. talked about earlier in our super exciting happy news updates. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, she's a congressional member from Maine, and um, there are a variety of provisions in there, including standardizing date labeling, um, and another one would be, for instance, to have a pilot program for the National School Lunch Program so they could figure out how to reduce food waste both in schools and develop sort of infrastructure to get fresh produce that might be what we consider ugly fruit. Yeah. It's not ugly. It's just imperfect. It doesn't mm-hmm. meet certain yeah. uh, standards. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it tastes delicious. Uh, but setting up sort of distribution centers to get them to schools. Okay. And the food date labeling, I think, think is really interesting <laughs> because um, there is no standard. Well, the right? only federally regulated date is baby food mm-hmm. or baby formula. I did not know. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. everything else is manufacturers. It's dates, just like yeah. whatever you want it to be. Sell by, best by, whatever. I mean, I, yeah, thank God by. baby formula. Like, 
It's a pretty low bar. <laughs> it's a pretty low bar. So yeah. so the idea, of course, is, is that because there's no standardized labeling, that allows, that like encourages people to throw a lot of waste or food away? So it's really confusing to consumers because there's best if used by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my friend actually texted me today and was like, I have this meat and it says <laughs> used by today. Am I going to kill my baby if yeah. I cook it? <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, yeah. But people just don't understand what it actually means. And because there are a variety of state laws, it's really difficult for industry to figure out um, essentially like what they have to comply with. And it's, yeah. it can be expensive, I mm-hmm. guess, for them. Um, okay, so so a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And I want to kind of stick with this um, federal, this like legislative process. I'm wondering if you can give me like just broad strokes um, of kind of how a bill gets introduced and then potentially passed that can affect like the law of the land at the federal level? Sure. So um, I'll use the Food Recovery Act as an example. Perfect. So Shelley Pingree would have um, had her staff or like other groups help her develop this bill. Um, She would then introduce it on a committee that's sort of an expert on the issue. And so in this case, it would have gone to the House and the Senate Ag Committees. Okay. Um, Those committees would take the language of the bill they would essentially um, decide what they liked in it, um, what they didn't like, maybe change or amend certain provisions, um, and then decide whether they were going to introduce it um, to the larger House or Senate floor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, once the bill comes out of committee and onto the floor, um, it needs a majority to pass. And then if it passes both the House and the Senate, um, it goes to the president to sign. Seems like that that second to last stop a step um, is really hard these days. <laughs> even getting out of committee can be yeah, really hard even. these days. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So I think that's really helpful for us. And then where where do you know where the Pingree Bill is? Um, I think the idea is that certain provisions of the Pingree Bill will be included in the Farm Bill. Okay. Um, but I don't think there's much chance that the whole bill as a package will leave the committee. Okay, so they're going to have to find innovative ways to get the major mm-hmm. tenants of it through. Um, okay, all right. So <coughs> now that we got the federal level under control, um, I want to talk a little bit about the state level. Are there certain um, legislative pro- proposals or initiatives happening, like just in general at, at the state level? And, and what would some of those be? Sure. So States um, have chosen to tackle food waste in a variety of different ways, um, some through education. It might be you know, information on composting, on how to prevent uh, food waste in the first place. Um, states also, I mean, much less glamorous, but have a really important role in leasing, licensing, and financing facilities. So that's for composting mm-hmm. or anaerobic digestion facilities. Um, that's, it's, I'm like... It's a little bit of a snooze fest. But, yeah. but no, yeah. it is. It is. Um, but really important. Right, and, right. Um, I can give you some examples of laws that might be a little more interesting. Yeah, let's talk about them. <laughs> okay, We're so. get the lawyer perspective here. <laughs> yeah, really interesting, I guess, is relative. But, um, for instance, Georgia has a, an environmental education and composting awareness law, um, and that requires that all teachers um, have access to composting um, 
sort of curricula and uh-huh. composting training as part of their professional development. Oh. Um, at a teacher's college, we love things focused on teachers. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, Oklahoma requires its state agencies to develop food waste regulations. Um, they're different across agencies, I believe, but um, also sort of symbolic to say that this is an issue that the state really cares about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess Vermont and Massachusetts, which you would probably are not shocked have yeah. uh, laws addressing food waste. Um, there are two interesting examples. Vermont has uh, fairly aggressive commercial and residential composting laws um, that will be going into effect, um, have started to go into effect, and essentially in the next 10 years, um, all residential uh, or all households will have to comply. And Massachusetts has a green jobs training program, which gives money uh, for people to develop um, skills to help in composting or anaerobic digestion facilities. Wow, that's amazing. I yeah. didn't know that about, especially about Georgia. That's like or secret. or Oklahoma, yeah. Which need a little good news coming out of that that yeah. state legislatively. Um, you have also been working on a bill that aims to award tax credits to farms for donating produce um, to local food banks. Can you speak about that? Sure. So um, previous to this role, I worked at the Natural Resource Defense Council, who um, has been a national leader on food waste issues, and um, but also works. Uh, at the state and city level to get local measures passed. Um, and one of the things we were was the Farm to Food Bank bill. And this is um, a bill that would have provided 25% of the wholesale value of any fresh fruits or vegetables um, to a farmer who donated them. They could claim up to $5,000 in a refundable credit. Um, and it's really important that it's a refundable credit mm. because a majority of New York State farmers um, actually report little or no income, and so they would actually... Like, like at all? At all. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a pretty tough time to be a farmer. Yeah. Um, and so this would be money in the bank for them. They could get up to $5,000, depending on how much income they claim. What would normally happen to this food? It would rot in the fields. Oh, that's good. So this, this covers it's- some of the packing and picking and maybe transporting costs. Um, and so where is that currently? The governor vetoed it about two weeks ago, unfortunately. Womp womp. Second time around. Where's our sound effects, David? <laughs> Second nope, time around. Right. Yeah. Did what? Could you speak of the differences or like the what was the approach in the second round? Like, were there amendments? What? So he vetoed this around the same time last year, and um, probably rightly so because the credit would ha- um, could have gone out of state, and so it essentially would be like New York giving money to New Jersey farmers, like money into New Jersey coffers. Um, you know, we want to give our tax dollars back to our taxpayers. Yeah, so that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Um, but the the person who introduced the bill um, had worked with a variety of groups to sort of make changes to the 2015 version. And so this would have limited it to farmers in state and made several other uh, sort of important small tweaks. Cool. All right. Good to know that it died. Uh, <laughs> what, where, where does it go now? Um, there are three options. One is, um, which seems very unlikely, is that um, legislators could choose to override Cuomo's veto, and that's really a rare. Um, the other is that it could be included in the governor's budget proposal, which will be out early next year. And the third is that um, sponsors reintroduce it in the next <laughs> session. If, if, if Smiles first, all around. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Um, okay, so, Louise... 
I, we haven't forgotten about you. <laughs> I want to um, shift the conversation to a local level and um, as somebody who spent a lot of time working in city government. I know that there are lots of things happening underway a lot of times that sometimes this get overlooked at the at the local level. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about the fabulous work happening um, at the New York City level. Um, yeah, what's going on? Sure. I uh, To start, though, I'd like to thank you both for including the Department of Sanitation in the conversation. Very happy Absolutely. Uh, so the New York City Department of Sanitation is responsible for the collection and management of all residential, institutional, um, and agency waste in New York City. So every day, our sanitation workers collect 10,500 tons of refuse and 2,000 tons of recyclables from each and every wow. one of every New Yorker. Um, that's a t- that's a it's lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. You can't. That's even- a ton. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, that's what yes. you know. <laughs> Good waste joke. Uh, yeah. So the, so, the um, we, so Mayor Phil de Blasio's administration has tasked us through their uh, one NYC plan to uh, divert uh, to grow our organics collection or organics diversion initiatives to serve all New Yorkers by the end of 2018. And and by or okay, so just to be super clear, by mm-hmm. organics, do you mean just um, vegetable scraps or? So or, so when we talk about organic waste, we're referring to all food waste, so vegetable scraps, prepared foods, um, anything, even oily, greasy, dairy, you know, uh, things you may not compost in your backyard, but um, that certainly we can, we can use to make compost or energy. Uh, we also extend that to food soiled paper and then any yard trimmings, yard waste that comes out of your backyard. Okay. Uh, so we, um, we to, to, to that end, uh, so organics actually, they make up about a third of New York City's waste, so a lot, so a third of that nearly 13,000 tons that we just talked about. And uh, to, to begin to divert that material, we began implementing curbside collection of organic waste in 2013. We've been rolling that out district by district throughout New York City, and I'd like to add to your good news list today yeah. by telling you that as of last week, we are the nation's largest organics collection program. Wow. Congrats. Yay! There he goes. There he goes. So <laughs> all of our listeners are doing right now. Can I just say I was really hoping that would happen? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He made it happen. Um, so, so now nearly, so more than 960,000 New Yorkers now have access to organics collection. Oh. So if you have a brown bin and you're out there listening, please yeah. use it. We want your food waste, food soiled paper, and yard, yard waste. Yeah. Um, we also, in addition to that, as we roll this out, we know um, we want to make sure as many New Yorkers as possible have access to organics diversion infrastructure. So we also have 88 drop-off sites citywide. Wow. These are at farmers markets, uh, commuter hubs, uh, community gardens, schools, uh, places where we have staff who are who set up a table, set up a, a site where you can drop your organics once a week. All you need to do is go to our website, um, nyc.gov slash organics, look up your nearest drop-off site and when they're open and bring us your, your food Crap. Uh, what, just one quick question. This is like on a practical level, and it's something I ha- like need the answer to. Um, what do you? Do? So you're you want to drop your your compost off or your scraps off once a week, right? But how does that actually work? I mean, we all in New York City live in fairly constrained environments. Like, how do I save my food scraps um, in a way that doesn't 
make my kitchen a gross place over so that. This is the most important question, so thank yeah. you for asking. Yeah. So, you know, initially this seems like a very daunting behavior change mm-hmm. in your kitchen. Um, uh, so what I do and what I find to be the easiest is I actually keep a bowl in my freezer, and as I'm chopping my vegetables or preparing any food, I'll then put take the bowl out of the freezer, set it on the counter, um, and, and kind of, you know, empty everything into the bin, put it back in the freezer, and forget about it until it's time to drop it off or take it. I actually compost in my backyard, but... Um, um, when I did drop it yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, and the freezing is, is amazing because you don't get odors. There's absolutely no chance of pests. Um, the food has, can't, won't start breaking down because it's frozen. Yeah. Um, and so then you just have a nice frozen block of food scraps to, to take over to yeah. your drop-off so site. Ditto. I also you, do that. The, awesome. Yeah, I yeah. just put it in a little bag. Yeah. Gold stars to you, yeah, Taylor. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we just bring them to the farmer's uh-huh. market. Grand Army Plaza every and they're, Saturday. they drop-off locations. Too, yeah. Because right? mm-hmm. I use yeah. one. Yeah. Yep. Do I get a gold star? Yeah, everybody gets, everybody gets gold stars but me. <laughs> yeah. I would say, though, so not everyone can freeze their food scraps. A lot of people, um, you know, the feedback I get is that you go shopping once a week and you put a lot of your food mm. in your freezer. Yeah. Or if you're you're very savvy about um, reducing food waste before it becomes waste, um, you might be freezing your tomatoes so that you can cook them later, that sort of thing, or freezing your kale stems to use to make vegetable stock. So a lot of people say, my freezer real estate is totally taken. Yeah. So the, ne- the next thing I say is, oh, do you have space in your fridge? Because it's sort of the huh. same idea. You can have a, a Tupperware or something in your fridge, throw your food scraps in there. You won't even notice they're there. You might want to indicate that they're food scraps yes. <laughs> yeah. on the outside for your, for your roommates or family members. Um, but if that, And then if that's not possible, we, when we roll out to a neighborhood, we provide kitchen containers to all residents. So they'll actually get a bin that they can set in their kitchen. Um, oh. And then we'll give you a coupon for compostable bags to line that bin. If you find that having it out on your counter means that it gets a little smelly or you, you see that there's a lot of liquids, one thing you can do is sprinkle oatmeal <coughs> or shredded paper, huh. things, things that are dry and, yeah. and for compost are carbon rich um, because that'll help absorb some of the moisture, redistribute it, and, and reduce odors. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. I'm going to do all of those things. <laughs> yeah. like, You'll last oh. a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So great. Okay. Yeah, so in speaking of some of these um, sort of initiatives, what have been some of the major barriers or challenges um, in implementing these programs? So New York City is diverse in absolutely every sense of the word. So, for instance, we have the world's tallest buildings and tiniest apartments, um, but we also have neighborhoods where you have rather large single-family homes with backyards and garages and plenty of space to store your garbage bins. So we, uh, and then, you know, beyond housing stock, it's, you know, we speak every language in the world. We have every uh, work or living situation. Um, so we had to develop a program or a suite of programs, really, that responded to that diversity. That really, as Claire was talking about meeting people where they're at, we're all about meeting people where they're at. Um, and I think also thinking about what speaks to people. So one of, um, I am just endlessly inspired by the work of our outreach team, which is, which are, they're out there every day um, trying to help people, trying to engage people in these programs and help them understand what it means to participate and why they should participate. One, one thing that I have noticed to be particularly successful, actually, is showing people we can produce endless brochures and, and, you know, marketing campaigns about how this works, but I think there's nothing that speaks to people more loudly than the compost itself. Uh, it seems to be something that, you know, healthy soil and, and uh, li- 
you know, soil that has life is something that, you know, just is, I don't know, has this visceral human mm. connection. And so we recently uh, were just, as, as we were rolling out alongside the rollout crews, we were um, putting compost on street trees, compost that we made at a DSMY facility on Staten Island, so that it really is New York City's organics turned into compost. And, uh, you know, residents just come over, they, they're, like, they're connected to it. And so we had my favorite story so far of the rollout is we had a gentleman come over and say, I just got a brown bin and I really don't want this. I totally don't want to participate. Do. This is like, yeah. this is not, you know, I, I don't know what this is about, but I really want that stuff. How do I get that stuff? And yeah. so, you know, then you, that you can kind of work backwards from there and say, I know it's hard to make this behavior shift. We just talked about how hard it is to set up in your kitchen, but... Uh, if you do, we can make this together, and we can provide this back to you. Beautiful, like compost soil. Mm-hmm. That, that yeah, what a great story. Yeah. Um, okay, one of the criticisms I've heard about, um, like, I'm, I'm thinking about the National School Lunch Program, right? And they obviously we know and um, implemented a series of nutritional guidelines um, that made the food healthier and um, naysayers some some people have said well it's not really great because it is actually it leads to more food waste because the kids don't want to eat the healthier food or you know whatever so um, I'm wondering <laughs> there you go. that's what I say to those critics um, but I'm wondering like if um, if this is something happening in New York City schools and if so how is um, DSNY and the Department of Education for New York City working together to tackle this issue? Uh, so I guess to start we work very closely with the Department of Education, uh, New York City School Food, Grow NYC, Materials for the Arts and a number of other partner organizations to help schools move towards our goal of, our collective goal of zero waste. Uh, so currently we provide organics collection service to 722 schools. Wow, That's about okay. 40% of the uh, DOE schools in New York City. Um, and uh, and provide a number of different outlets for um, or programs for engaging every stakeholder in a school building, from um, you know the students and the teachers to the custodians and the kitchen staff. Uh, okay. The I I think um, I would you know maybe Julia could speak to the nutrition uh, standards, but I will say that New York City is an active participant in the Urban School Food Alliance, uh, which had which is a uh, I think it's five cities, so Chicago, L.A. Sorry, I'm not. I, yeah, there you go. Not speaking close enough to the <laughs> microphone. Sorry about that. Uh, so we're part of the Urban School Food Alliance, um, which is a number of large cities coming together to, uh, you know, use their purchasing power to keep costs down, but make sure that we're getting the right materials in the um, in the cafeteria, so that more and more of this material is compostable. And one area where we've seen great success is banding together to purchase uh, compostable trays, so to move uh-huh. away from foam trays in the cafeteria to compostables, yeah. which means it makes that source separation process in the cafeteria just a little bit easier. Yeah. We can all go in the same bin. Nice. And um, I'd like to point out that the first one or two studies um, show that there was a dip in student consumption, and then more recent studies have shown that students are actually eating the food, um, I think, at the same or an increased level. Um, oh, good. So maybe not so true. No, I don't think that's actually true finding. Yeah, nice. Um, okay, Louise, what are some of the other cities that um, are currently implementing innovative food <coughs> programs, food waste programs, and you know what can we learn from them? So, you know. This is really an exciting and wonderful time to be working in this space, uh, just because of how much innovation is going on, not just across the United States, but around the world. 
Um, and, it, and it's not, it's, you know, uh, when you think about the food waste value chain, it's every stakeholder across it. So it's the municipalities, the composters, the uh, groups collecting the material, the, the generators. Um, I just, we're just seeing so many interesting ideas out there. To name a couple, I would say if you go to Milan right now, um, your groceries, your grocery bag that you get at the grocery store is compostable, which makes it super easy when you go home to take your food scraps, separate them out. That's amazing. Uh, I know. How cool is that? Yeah. I know. We don't, need to, we don't need to tax plastic bags. We just need to give out compostable bags. You heard it in Milan first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and that gets, again, at this idea of meeting people where they're at because it's just, it makes it that much easier. You have this bag already. It's a very nat- easy process to take that and then put it, line your bin in your bathroom. Or yeah, like, it's, it's making the, yeah. right, the, yes, the easy choice, the, the best choice, mm-hmm. the easy choice, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're also, you know, I, I also uh, always call out Seattle and Cedar Grove. Uh, Cedar Grove is the compost uh, the composter for Seattle, they've done really an incredible job of compostability testing. So now, as a consumer, when you go to a store, there's all of these brands and, uh, you know, for everything from plates to serviceware to bags, uh, telling you that they're green or biodegradable. Yeah. Um, Cedar Grove has really done an incredible job of not only testing that, so actually putting these materials in their piles, looking at them brand by brand, item by item, what actually breaks down, what makes good compost, um, but then also making putting that on their website in an incredibly uh, user-friendly way. And then I would say um, on the one of the big ways that we or one of the most important um, sources of inspiration for us uh, is what other cities are doing in terms of marketing, what's worked in terms of engaging people, speaking to people about this. Yeah. I to you know I recently saw an incredibly beautiful campaign coming out of San Francisco called Real Foodies Compost. They have a whole website. Check it out. It's beautiful. Awesome. Um, and then you know Vancouver has a fantastic uh, campaign where food scraps are, you know, it's kind of a silly characters of food scraps, but there's a lot of, we, you know, we look, we definitely are looking to see what groups are doing to engage residents. In nice. Yeah. Um, it truly is like an innovative space. So that's good to be reminded of and hear those stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, Julia, given our impending political reality, uh, what do you see as industry's role uh, to be in preventing and diverting food waste? Sure. So I'd have to start with I'm always in favor of government uh, <laughs> in the <laughs> industry. Yeah, we kind of all are. <laughs> yeah. Here, yeah. Um, just because I think they're thinking more broadly about the public good and yeah. have the power to um, enforce regulations or standards. Um, but industry, especially now, I think state and local measures and um, things coming from the private sector will be really important. And so yeah. um, a couple good examples come to mind. One would be um, Campbell's. They're doing a lot around food waste. And one example they have uh, is the Just So Peachy campaign. Oh. <laughs> and um, they had New Jersey, their facilities located, or they have production facilities in New Jersey, and they had uh, far- peach farmers there donate their peaches. They had staff donate um I guess, production time, and they canned a bunch of peaches into this peach salsa, which they donated to uh, the food bank, and the food bank was able to sell them and generate a huge amount of revenue to purchase sort of a broader array of foods. That's amazing. I didn't even hear about that. Yeah. And if Taylor didn't hear about it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really really exciting. Um, Okay, so that's that's like an example of a food company doing really cool things. Uh, what about like at the supermarket level? Um, so uh, Kroger, I think, has been a, a bit of a leader in this area. They have um, developed 
or, or in the process of developing um, donation policies across their stores, and it depends on the region. Um, they also have put an anaerobic, co-located an, an anaerobic digestion, sorry, I always say AD, so actually having to say that out loud is difficult, <laughs> uh, facility at one of their supermarkets. So any wow. food that's unused just goes straight in. And, and it just, like gets processed right there and mm -hmm. turned into compost right on site? Well, anaerobic digestion is a little different, and Louise is probably better suited to explain it, but for a, a very short answer would just be that it sort of liquefies food to create a fuel. Yeah. Right. That, we're looking at Louise. Thumbs up. <laughs> that, does that make sense? Should I go through compost anaerobic uh, digestion? I thought you said it was stews, like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's different anyway. We, I so thumbs up. Yeah. 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 yeah, but yeah, essentially it has to do with the how you're using microorganisms to break down material. In a compost facility, you're doing it with in an oxygen-rich environment, so you have aerobic bacteria that produce... Um, as byproducts, uh, well, the humus or the compost that's produced, but then also carbon dioxide, heat, and air and water, uh, or the carbon dioxide being the air. Uh, in anaerobic digestion, you have uh, organisms breaking down the material in an uh, oxygen uh, in an, an environment with no oxygen, um, and that's okay. hence anaerobic. Uh, and so, it, the, what the bacteria do is they then produce methane as a byproduct rather than the carbon dioxide, um, and so you're able to then capture that methane and use that as your energy source. Huh. <laughs> wow. Cool. Fascinating. Okay, and so Kroger is harnessing the methane to use it as an energy source. Okay. Yes. Nodding. Got it. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, well, what about lastly, um, are, are like a restaurants are a big uh, kind of food waster? And if so, what's happening with them? So... Um, I think, as Claire mentioned before, in America, consumers are the single largest producer of food waste, but uh, restaurants certainly play a huge role. And um, I think Yum! Brands is, like, you know, large national chains who own... Uh, Taco Bell? <laughs> yeah, Cheesecake Factory, et cetera. Um, are all the good ones. All the, all <laughs> the good ones. <laughs> are developing donation policies. Um they also, I think, uh, that's sort of on the, like, diversion side. Do, do I, like, um, do, sorry, um, donation policies to food banks, like, for leftover food? or mm -hmm. And are they allowed to do that? As long as it's not served, um, sort of, it doesn't come out of the kitchen to a consumer. Okay. Um, Back-of-house food can be donated. Um, and a lot of companies are also using this new technology called LeanPath, and there are other several similar um, companies like them that help you track and monitor food waste. And so you see at which stage. Is it in your refrigerator? Is it on your buffet line, et cetera? Yeah, that, and so they can kind of plan for that. Plan better. That's interesting. I think one of the biggest problems in restaurants is sort of planning and figuring out where the food waste is occurring. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I want to kind of go back to the point of, you know, restaurants are able to donate food. And so um, I think this is there's a common misperception or at least kind of a fear that if you don't donate um, food of some kind to a food bank um, and it's bad for whatever reason and people get sick that you can get sued or, you know, or whatever. So, you know, are there like legal or policies in place um, that kind of protect the donator? Um, at the federal level, there's a bill called the Bill Emerson Hunger uh, Law, I guess, and it's um, it protects you from any sort of liability. Yeah. That, is that the Good Samaritan law? Yeah, yes. shorthand Good Samaritan. Yeah. Got it. And then at the state level, many states also have like a reiteration of that bill uh, that sometimes goes a little bit further. But no one has ever been sued 
Yeah. I think that it's like a huge problem. A lot of companies are like, I can't do this because they don't want to risk it. But essentially, they're protected. Yeah. All right. Um, Okay. So we've got to wrap up in a few minutes. But I want to... um, ask you both um, for those individuals listening today um, who want to support and champion some of these programs um, what what can they do um, Julia do you want to kick it off and kind of speak broadly in terms of h- how people can get involved at the federal or state level sure I mean um, I think just by writing letters either to congressional members or to other businesses saying this is an issue you care about you want to see them act on it um, mm-hmm. I think once people realize that a lot of people are talking about it, it's more likely to be taken up um, as an issue and acted on. Right. All right. So talk about it. Yeah. To your friends, to your neighbors. To your food (laughs) companies. They're pretty responsive, usually, to consumer demands. Um, Okay. Get active, politically active. Louise, what we talked about, um, some of the really, really practical things you can do um, in New York City in your own kitchen, given the resources that we are afforded as New Yorkers by the Department of Sanitation. Um, But for those listening in other places, how can they either find out if they have similar programs um, and or, you know, kind of help encourage their local um, departments to implement certain um, programs? So I would would echo Julia and say definitely... um, check your local sanitation department or public works department, talk to your elected officials, they should know. Mm -hmm. Um, But something that we, so we didn't talk about community composting um, in New York City, but uh, New York is home to, I would say, the largest uh, network of community compost sites uh, in the country, certainly. Um, And what that is, what is community composting, that's um, neighbors composting together at schools, community gardens, um, on vacant lots, in in public spaces. I think maybe even here at Roberta's, there's some composting that goes on. Um, And and what we've seen is that this act of doing it together in your neighborhood is an incredible way to show your, to, to really engage people in it, to build public support for this work it, it it's you know as we talked about earlier this is something that people can all relate to and yeah and i think certainly we've been investing in community composting since 1993 through wow. our nyc compost project we fund seven nonprofit organizations the four botanical gardens lori site ecology center earth matter and big reuse to do this work and the reason we do that is because we've been very committed to the idea that if people see it see it, they'll under you know see it happening in their neighborhood engage in in composting with their neighbors they'll really understand the value of this and that extends you know beyond residents to elected officials and and organiz- you know public uh you know uh, people um putting together public policy yeah. and all that who are you know thinking about how to implement this in their community all right okay well i could continue talking about this for forever but um we have to unfortunately um wrap it up for today Um, I want to thank all of our guests who joined us, Claire Uno, Julia McCarthy, and Louise Bruce for coming on the show. (laughs) There we go. Um, Thank you also to our sponsors for your very generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lanzette, and the show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you for our engineer and sound effects guru, David Tadashore. All of our episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network uh, website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.